Trades, da und da auf meine French Lips. Handelband meine Psyche, am drücken die ein Bekloppter. Bis aus weitester Ferne mein Sohn sein. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell, and you are about to hear me affecting that pretense during our final interview in our three-week series, The Best of This Is Hell 2022 edition. Actually, to be honest, the conversation you're about to hear is one that I did not have to pretend to know what I was talking about as much as I usually do, because our final interview selected by listeners as their favorite of 2022 is our discussion with journalist Roberto Lovato, who wrote the Alta Online or Alta Media article, Alta Journal, that's what it is, Alta Journal article, The Gentrification of Consciousness. Yes, the upcoming discussion is about psychedelics, hallucinogens, psychoactive substances that introduce users to alternative reality. In fact, its subheadline is San Francisco's Mission District has become synonymous with well-paid tech workers displacing non-white long-time residents. It's now the setting for a new battle as the coming psychedelic industrial complex threatens to strip hallucinogenic drugs of their historical and religious significance. It's a talk about tripping, and while I may have very little training when it comes to economics, finance, philosophy, theology, political science, and any science for that matter, literature and technology, all topics we discuss on the show regularly, I have tripped a lot. Like so many times I have lost count, but it's, it's got to be at least 100 trips over my lifetime. At the very least. I, I know, a lot of you are stroking your chins right now, muttering something like, oh, that explains it, whatever it is you think about me. And who knows? Maybe it does. Maybe you're right. For those of you who have heard the rumor that if you take LSD 25 times in your lifetime, you can legally be determined to be insane. Well, that's a complete myth. As Snopes states, no matter what form the rumor takes, it is bunk. No specific number of LSD trips renders a user insane in either a legal or psychiatric sense. Snopes reminds us that insanity is a legal term, not a psychiatric one. Insanity is not about an individual's mental health or their psyche. Insanity is whether a person acts overtly in a way that is outside of our understanding, and thus we label them insane. That kind of reminds me of the whole thing where, like, previously like in the early t up until like the early 2000s uh in the immigration and naturalization law if uh an immigrant applicant had uh admitted to using any kind of illegal substance more than once they were deemed a drug addict and inadmissible to live in the wow. united states <laughs> wow just as a little anecdote again here. again it's not you know it's not about actually having a drug addiction it's just about legality that's yeah. all it's just about yeah. the law it has nothing to do with reality and i'm in no way advocating that you do what i have done trip countless number of times just because i talk about drinking beer on the show that does not mean i think you or anyone else should drink beer in fact I am all for dry January. I have been with the same person for decades without getting married. That does not mean it is what's best for you and your loved one, or more if you are polyamorous. 
which I'm not into, but if you are and that makes everyone in that relationship happy and feeling like they have, they're living a fulfilled life, whatever that is, fine. I'm good with that. In no way would I ever impose my personal life cho- choices upon anyone else, nor do I think anyone should impose their life choices upon me. All that said, who knows if my self-diagnosed OCD, ADHD, and PTSD is caused by my self-prescribed hallucinogen intake. I certainly don't. After all, I've tripped literally countless number of times, so why should I trust my own opinion? But what I do know is tripping had a deep effect on me. I would not call it spiritual because New Age anti-vaxxer QAnon types have co-opted that word and weaponized it. Nor would I say it was sacred because that connotes religion, and I certainly would not say tripping for me is religious because it does not connect to any religion that I have studied. That doesn't mean there is not a a religion that hallucinogens connect with, and I certainly believe it does for indigenous people, but... I'm just some white doofus who is unaware of those religious connotations and connections. I cannot put into words exactly what tripping has done for me because it is beyond words, which either tells you how intense it was for me or how weak my vocabulary is. Some say it causes intense feelings of empathy for others, but I don't think it helps me understand or share the feelings of others as much as it leads me to having an increased amount of respect for those feelings. Understanding implies a a mastering of knowledge, but tripping never gave me those kinds of egotistic feelings as much as it made me feel humble as I face a universe that suddenly seems far more infinite than I'd ever noticed before. As I realize I'm a mere speck next to nothing and an incomprehensible vastness and filled with joy as I realize my own insignificance. Tripping for me is the realization of contradictions in the universe, our world, our society, ourselves, and reveling in all of them and how they can all coexist in perfect harmony, at least for me. Tripping, after all, is how I came up with the name of the show you are listening to right now. This is hell. Now, I've shared this on the air in the past, but the other day I was repeating the story to my non-wife, which seemed to me like the hundredth time I told her the story. But she said she had never heard me tell it before. I'm nearly certain I've told her, but I I talk a lot, as you may have noticed. And it it, it makes sense that she would filter a lot of it out. So for those of you who have not heard it before, one beautiful summer afternoon during one rather intense trip, I found myself and my best friend from middle school climbing around on a parked, stopped, empty freight train, going from car to car, smoking weed and enjoying the view of nature surrounding the tracks. As we moved along the train, hopping from car to car, climbing over it, around it, through it, the day turned into night without us realizing it. We had reached the trestle where the train engine had parked on the other side of the trestle, which is just a railway bridge over a body of water. Uh, There was a bonfire blazing in a nearby farm field surrounded by underage drinking teenagers. As we were tripping balls, we decided to avoid the crowd by walking on the opposite side, opposite edge of the bridge, using the train to block us from their view. But in doing so, we had to balance on the end of the railroad ties that stuck out over the river, 20-some feet below, and it was not a deep river, as you could see a discarded kitchen stove sticking out of it, its whiteness reflecting brightly from the full moon. To make the treacherous walk, we had to take one step at a time, carefully placing our feet with... Any single step, meaning we would fall down to the river and likely get impaled on who knows what kind of garbage. 
to steady ourselves, our left hand was on the motionless train as we heard the partiers partying. Suddenly the train moved. I went down to my hands and knees and looked back at my friend who had jumped between cars, got on a hitch, and jumped over to the other side of the train. Instead, I looked under the moving train, timed the wheels as they passed, and leapt underneath a moving train. Once under, I had to curl myself up in a fetal position to not get my legs chopped off by the wheels behind me, and again I had to time the next wheel. Once it passed, I lunged out like a diver off of a high board and scrambled to my feet. My friend was screaming that he thought I had died. We walked together for a few minutes, but I was so traumatized I needed to be by myself. Once alone, I started wondering, did I die? Was, was my friend right? I looked around at how horrible the world looked to me at that point. Endless parking lots and highways and sidewalks and paved streets, suffocating the earth and the slow death of what is natural, which has always been normalized and tolerated. And I thought to myself, this is hell. So yeah, we're playing our interview with Roberto Lovato on the psychedelic industrial complex, and this is very timely, as just a few days ago on New Year's Day, recreational psilocybin use in is now legal in Oregon, which sounds great, but once something becomes legal, as we have learned with recreational marijuana, it, is it becomes only legal for American citizens. Yeah, and it also becomes the property of huge corporations, which will actually make those drugs worse and more dangerous. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Vooper. Sebastian, Patreon patrons know this already, but you have a huge life change happening in the next week. Let's get that news out from behind the paywall. Sebastian, you are leaving Chicago. Where are you going and why? I am going to hell. No, wait a minute. I'm already here. Uh, no, we are moving to uh, Grand Rapids. Michigan. So you are moving to hell. Eh, yeah. Grand Rapids is not that bad. Come no, on. But Hell, Michigan's not that far away. You can go uh, visit. Hmm, 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 I yeah. do want to become a mayor of Hell, Michigan. You can, <laughs> you can do that. You can do that for one day, oh, and they then will impeach you. And but you get to put on your resume that you've been a mayor of Hell, Michigan. So I really do want to get around uh, to that. So you're moving to Grand Rapids. Yeah, Why? Uh, because my wife got a job there, and uh, because my other jobs besides this one. Uh, this is the only job where I actually have to be in Chicago, so I will have to lay down, uh, hand in my badge and gun, um, as it were, or <laughs> my mic and uh, soundboard, mm, I guess. I guess. <laughs> um, and yeah, and uh, just uh, re- reduce my uh, hell duties to occasionally producing something and uh, keeping on doing the past inside the present. So have um, you ever been to uh, Grand Rapids before? Like a couple of times, just you know, driving through, having lunch there, you know, stuff like that. Like not, not extensively. Um, it's it's nice, you know. It's beer, you know, beer city USA and everything. Sure. Um, it's it's a cute little little city. It was um, named an all American city. I knew a guy who had to paint the mural on. I can't remember was that on a viaduct or where it was, but he had to paint this gigantic mural that said Grand Rapids. An all-American city, because they were named an all-American city. About two years later, he had become a punk and went back and destroyed that mural. <laughs> what does that even mean, an all-American city? There was some sort of weird classification that was being made by the president back then that some cities would be announced as all-American cities. And I think Gerald Ford was president, and that's why they got to be named oh. an all-American Every Everything in... Uh, Grand Rapids, either named after Gerald Ford or Amway, as you know. Yeah. Uh, are you aware yeah. of how conservative Grand Rapids is? Uh, 
given the uh, insane amount of like DeVos and Amway <laughs> and Gerald Ford, I you're pretty aware. Yeah, <laughs> it's not yeah. subtle. It's yeah. I mean, it probably has a pretty good punk scene because most conservative places do, do right? Exactly. Um, so I'm not. And it's a big furniture town. They used to. I think they used to be called. A, the bedroom of America or something like that. <laughs> I'm not kidding you because they're a big furniture maker right outside of Grand Rapids. There's this old crumbling factory and there used to be a real estate sign on a billboard that used to say, uh, if your home, if your home was here or no, if you, if you were, if you, if, uh, if you lived here, you'd be home by now. That was a big real estate billboard. Mm. And so they had this crumbling factory outside of Grand Rapids that it said, if your factory was here, you'd be working by now. And I was just like, that does, that does not make me happy. No, no, that's not really how that works. <laughs> we do have listeners in GR. Would you like them to contact you? I mean, sure, by all means. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's. It, but I, I'm, I'm, I don't know anybody there. That's kind of the problem. I mean, we do know, uh, like people who used to live there who can give us tips about like which neighborhoods to avoid and which neighborhoods to go into mm -hmm. and, and and all that all that jazz um but other than that i don't know there's nobody there there's no like like social infrastructure for me so i'll have to build that from the ground up but then again you know it's COVID times so like my social infrastructure here is basically just the show right uh, in winter i'm not even coming to office hours so yeah, exactly, exactly. By the way, thanks to everybody who came out for Office Hours last night. And thanks to Micah for uh, telling, for giving us the newest Bundestag calendar. Well, we're definitely going to miss you here on the show, Sebastian, and we're looking forward to you continuing with the past inside the present. But far more important than any of that, Sebastian, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? Uh, this week's question from hell is... We rarely fulfill our New Year's resolutions. We never actually do what we say we are determined to do. So what did you do in 2022 that you have resolved not to do in 2023? Uh, so the problem is that we have exactly one, two, three replies to this on Facebook. Seriously, is everybody on vacation and, still? And only two on Twitter. We've <laughs> only, only had five. On this is a record low number of responses to the question from hell. And I blame myself because I'm the one who wrote this week's question from yeah, hell that, that's for having happened. a not in it. It's The yeah, negative confuses yeah, yeah. everybody and they don't know if they're, they're, are they supposed to be saying what they're resolving to do, what they're resolving not to do. It's very confusing. Yeah, see, that's what happens I when I myself. don't write these. Yeah, that's exactly um, what happens. So, uh, wait, did, have the ones on Twitter been read already? or None of uh, They've all been read. They've all been they've read. All, been all read right. So if all we right. get another well, response, we'll... Okay. Tell everybody what that response is. The Re revolution will not be televised, but you can hear it every week live here on This Is Hell. And we should all be revolting against the rise of the marijuana and psychedelic industrial complex. Here to explain why, our January 2022 interview with journalist Roberto Lovato. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Sometimes when you stare into that abyss, it's almost as if the abyss is staring back at us, filling us with the depression and dread that comes with modern life, where we can far too often feel disposable. Luckily, there have been breakthroughs in the area of psychotherapy and substances that have been illegal for far too long. 
are now being understood as having very positive psychotherapeutic effects on maladies like PTSD, which so many of us are suffering from today. Unfortunately, those therapeutics, including psilocybin mushrooms and LSD, once legalized, become commercialized, and their for-profit substitutes can be far too expensive for those who need them while erasing their indigenous history of healing. Here to guide us through what may very well be a brave new world for psychedelics, journalist Roberto Lovato wrote the Alta Journal article, The Gentrification of Consciousness. Welcome to This Is Hell, Roberto. Excited to be with you, Chuck. And thanks to Dan B. again for suggesting Roberto as a guest. You can follow Roberto on Twitter at Rob Vado, and you can find out more about Roberto at his website, robertolovato.com. So you start by right, by mentioning uh, Lucia Abragon Matzer, who remembers crying every day and calling her mom and telling her the stories she was hearing. She was in her mid-20s, a recent college graduate, working with renters in crisis and unhoused people living on the streets, victims of gentrification in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. The stories they told moved her deeply, sometimes too deeply. You then quote her recalling, I felt helpless and powerless to help people like the 70-year-old woman who reminded me of my abuelita in Guatemala. I got so depressed, I started asking myself, what's the value of my work? If there is no way I can change things, is there no way I can change things? I started questioning whether I wanted to live in search of healing. She joined some of her friends in San Francisco for a psychedelic journey. So to you, Roberto, what explains why any person in Obregon Matzer's situation would seek out something that is not legal, that is illegal, that is not regulated in any way, instead of seeking a more conventional and legal way to address her depression? What explains that turn towards psychedelics rather than going to see a psychotherapist who will just, uh, you know, do the regular psychotherapy? that is more conventional well that's going to be a longer interview than we have time for chuck i'm sorry but uh, big question <laughs> you're asking me but uh no no uh i mean i think the reason behind why lucia and millions of others turn to illegal substances has a deep history and i found no better place to tell that history from than my home neighborhood of San Francisco's Mission District, one of the most magical places on earth in the 60s and 70s and before. Some people would think it's, people who are more greedily inclined think it's a magical place now, but that's part of the problem, right? Is the, you know, the the, the beauty that we had here in the mission as far as all these different streams of consciousness, whether it's black power with the Black Panthers in Dolores Park, Presida Park in Oakland, Huey Newton, Angela Davis, San Quentin, this, you know, on and on. Or Brown Power, Cesar Chavez, farm workers and, you know, the Brown Berets and uh, eventually Central American revolutionary groups that I joined. Uh, and women's power was coming to the fore in San Francisco, as was gay power, where, where San Francisco was arguably the center of it. And, and one of those major streams of consciousness was the stream of hippie, psychedelic consciousness that has a deep history beyond white people, right? Because if you look at the medicines, they began being taken here in this hemisphere by the indigenous peoples in places like Mexico, the Olmec, Aztec, Maya, uh, Mazatec, on and on. They're just all the way to Peru. People were experimenting with alternative forms of consciousness that for millennia have been, you know, had nothing to do with legality. The, 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 the illegalization of psychedelics only comes 
with people like Junipero Serra, the friar that quote unquote helped found San Francisco by putting Mission Dolores Church here and having, you know, Ohlone and other indigenous slave workers who were used themselves, used psychedelics, build the chapels. And so when Junipero Serra comes to San Francisco and throughout Mexico, where he was, he was a representative of the Inquisition, which is the first de facto drug war in the Americas. And so, you know, the, the reason that, so I draw a line that runs from the indigenous practices of the, that became underground practices with Junipero Serra to Lucia's practices today. And the practices of many of us throughout San Francisco, throughout California, Northern California, throughout the Southwest and throughout the country and the world have, you know, been using these things long before, say, Michael Pollan came to the picture about, what, seven, ten years ago, where, prior to which he had no experience with it. So I, I wanted to write from the perspective of somebody that had a about 40 years into this and and, it, and just happened to be in, the, in a magical neighborhood where my brother went to school with Carlos Santana. And Santana's dad, his mariachi, played at my graduation from, from Berkeley. So... Um, Lucia comes to it because of, uh, to Ill illegal use because of history, because it, you know, it's part of a tradition and because people have no choice to access these powerful medicines that really do have potential to deal with, as you said, depression, alcoholism, anxiety, end of life issues. And something I have some experience with trauma, specifically war trauma because of the revolutionary uh, organization I joined in the 19, late 80s and early 90s in El Salvador, the FMLN. So um, I, I wrote this because it's breaking my heart to see that people that could really use these medicines aren't getting access to them because only 10% of people over the last 25 years who've been a part of any experiments or legal efforts to use the medicines have been non-white. You you started by saying the mission has uh, is a magical place, but has it gone from? Because I think this speaks to gentrification in San Francisco. Has the mission gone from being a magical place to being branded as a magical place? And how does that change what the mission is? I think that depends. Do you believe Airbnb or do you believe people like me? Right. <laughs> right. Airbnb is telling us it's a magical place that it's edgy and it's. Um, you know, kind of uh, rough and this really exoticized view of uh, as if we are like, you know, taking the colonial gaze down south to South America or something. Uh, but no, they, they, they're looking at the mission that way and, and, and a mission that because of big finance and big uh, pharma, big biotech, big tech have uh, turned San Francisco into the center of the Silicon Revolution that we've all everybody in the world has experienced. And you know, I haven't been a former revolutionary. I, I don't use the term lightly. They, technology really has altered our modes of production in some ways and, and our, 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 our ways of interacting, our sexuality, our many things. And so, um, and it's come at a very fast pace and you can see it clearly in places like the mission where friends that I grew up with, where like my friend Lalo, who I first took mescaline with in a, in a lowrider on Mission Street, uh, you know, his family had to face being pushed out by their landlords because the landlord could get more money in the 1980s from these these techies that were kind of up and coming. I mean, people, I laugh at 
not not in a in a down looking way, but I laugh when I hear people say like, "Man, I remember when things weren't so gentrified in the 2000s." I'm like, "Holy shit! I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and it was already being gentrified as early as 1973 with the BART station." And so I, you know, I write the story from a place like La Boheme Cafe, which is a historic place where there was a lot of revolutionary activity by Chileans, Nicaraguans, Salvadoran revolutionaries. Uh, and there was also hippies like uh, Diamond Dave, who showed um, a guy named Zimmerman the way of uh, folk music, uh, Bob Dylan. You know, these are people that would come to La Boheme and reflect the, the great and magical culture that the BART station right across the street from La Boheme began kind of displacing the people, the poor, the artists, the creators, the um, the political, the leftists, the activists, and and have replaced them with uh, you know ten people apartments that I my friends grew up in or that I grew up in ten people or more in a in an apartment are now held by one person, one single techie, or they're even owned by them. In fact, Mark Zuckerberg lives not too far outside of the mission, which could even be defined as the former mission. So how uh, you you mentioned this earlier, and I wanted to make sure that we touched on this. How is the Inquisition the first drug war? Well, um, you know, indigenous peoples didn't need the Europeans to come and do anything for them. They had their own way of life for millennia. It seemed to have worked for them for millennia. And then uh, the Spanish Inquisition, part of the Renaissance, right? Right. This was during the Renaissance era, quote unquote. And, you know, the Spanish Inquisition was pursuing uh, demonic forces, whether it was women that were persecuted, whether it was uh, uh, queer people or indigenous people for different indigenous people were condemned for demonic beliefs and for demonic practices among the demonic practices here in San Francisco that were condemned and across the hemisphere was the use of uh, different plants. Uh, that 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 are psychoactive, and there's a whole bunch. It's not just the ones we know, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that, uh, again, the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Ohlone here, and and, and uh, Zapotec, and Olmec, and other peoples have used for millennia. Suddenly, when the Inquisition comes in here with Junipero Serra, whose castle was just toppled last year in Golden Gate Park, uh, suddenly these substances that have been legal for millennia become quote unquote illegal right it's kind of like the same way that they border off humanity from from one another suddenly people that have had relationships across landscapes suddenly find themselves indigenous people who are cut off from their 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 brothers sisters cousins to the south because of this artificial thing called a border so the laws are these artificial borders put around consciousness and I think gentrification is kind of the new border in the city. If you look at maps of San Francisco where poor people can live and can't live, that space is being demarcated and delimited further and further with each passing day, with each split of the silicon chip. And so the speed of gentrification has accelerated. And I, I wrote the piece as a way to signal, okay, what they're doing in the material world is coming to consciousness. Is to coming to the to our right to to explore our altered states, you know, to our access to medicines. We're, we may be entering a brave new world where the people that are in the biotech firms, 
pharmaceutical firms, computer companies, Twitter, Facebook, and whose employment statistics don't include Black and Latinos, for example, are going to be the people who primarily benefit from the quote-unquote psychedelic renaissance that's being touted. I don't use the term because, again, the, the renaissance was the de facto beginning of the first drug war in the Americas. You uh, also, uh, you write how yet as beneficial as Obregon Matzer and her friends in formal community-based psychedelic use is, is threatened by the above-board mainstreaming of their medicina by pharmaceutical, medical, and psychological interests. What for centuries, as you were pointing out, has been a largely taboo or prohibited experience is on the verge of becoming fully legal in majority, minority, California, and other states. So I've mentioned this on the show in the past, but I want to get your opinion. What's wrong with legalizing drugs that the possession of currently can land you in jail? What could possibly wrong with uh, what could possibly be wrong with legalizing things like psilocybin or LSD? It's what's wrong with uh, doing away with the rent control, right? <laughs> that didn't really that didn't really work out for most of us, right? When they started dismantling these historic laws that limited. Uh, the ability of landlords to displace, physically displace um, uh, people from their homes and their, pla- their places of origin, like my family in the mission. So in the same way, I think, some, in, a, in a parallel way, I think in, in the realm of consciousness, as we've seen with marijuana laws, you the, on the surface, they seem logical and make sense, but in the implementation and in the practice, they kind of continue the patterns of policing, uh, illegalizing some and jailing some and benefiting and profiting others. Like I interviewed a guy for my story. It was heartbreaking for me who had just done 25 years in uh, one of the prisons along Highway 99 here in California. You know, and I, I met him at the uh, the world's only LSD museum here in the mission. It's a great place. Um, and, uh, you know, he was telling me about the story of what he had had lived through and he was basically dealing things that are about to become legal now so imagine what he feels like after coming fresh out of you know out of the out of, out of prison to see that things are getting legal for which he had to give up the majority of his life because the guy was about in his 40s i think or or 50s i mean or at least half of his life let's say and so uh you know tim tyler was his name and, you know, imagine how Tim felt uh, and feels. I mean, he must feel, wow, I'm glad others aren't going to face what I face. But damn, man, I had to go to prison because uh, I was trying to do what these pharmaceuticals, these big companies are now going to make profit out of and leave me out of. So the people that were at the very front of the true psychedelic revolution that is millennia old, the indigenous peoples, the Latinx peoples, the hippies even, most of us are going to be left out of the profits and possibly the benefits of these, of psilocybin, of peyote, of mescaline, and other medicines that have proven to be able to to do real damage in the fight against intractable things like end of life, depression, alcoholism, and other things that people have been doing other drugs and other therapies to no effect with. 
And you write that the growing and largely white business of blowing mines adds to the economic distress of poor non-white communities while denying them access to the powerful mind-altering substances that might help them. So, Roberto, why does white privilege come with legalizing things like marijuana and mushrooms? And, and to you, what does that reveal about the law? Well, again, this is where we have to have a longer interview, man. I mean, uh, I think there's a guy named W.E.B. Du Bois that might have said it best of, among many about the color line. The color line is not just San Francisco or California. The color line is global. I mean, for many people that study gentrification, for example, the canaries in the minefield of gentrification are often black people. Here in San Francisco, we surely saw that. San Francisco is on its well on its way to become a town that's completely devoid of black people except for small pockets. Los Angeles has seen a similar decrease in the black population, as has California as a whole, as the economic shifts in the state have not seen fit to accommodate blackness in the economy. So, um, you know, white supremacy, white privilege, color, pretty much every aspect of our lives, as W.E. Du Bois, Angela Davis, and countless others have have shown us and so why would psychedelics be any different i mean even i mean i, I have friends who were hippies i had neighbors who were hippies in the in the 60s and 70s you know like this guy named pete who was our right next door to us we could hear what was happening on the other side of our apartment walls him and his family and um pete pete and his wife liza um you know they they, they were hippies and they were really cool they treated us great but the hippie movement wasn't exactly a, a black thing or a brown thing. You had to have these other folks like Sly Stone who would come to San Francisco and to the mission to play music as would this local kid who came from, from Jalisco, Mexico to play music, Carlos Santana, who played with, who went to school with my brother at Mission High School, where I also studied like two decades later. And uh, so, so, so that, you know, there was a, there's a, there's a, my story is as much about the psychedelic underground and the beauty and the power that those of us in our respective undergrounds built. Like, you know, everybody loves, and I love, uh, you know, Summer of Soul, but, you know, there's a psychedelic element there. If you look at the way, for example, that Bay Area native um, and psychedelics user, Sly Stone, fundamentally altered the Motown sound the Motown look, the Motown dress. I mean, and he did it in along with a guy named Jimi Hendrix. You know, uh, uh, he brought all those stiff, you know, suit wearing, kind of uh, shiny shoe wearing Motown, uh, beautiful music musicians there. He brought them into the psychedelic era when suddenly little Stevie Wonder's wearing kind of psychedelic clothing in Summer of Soul, if you look at it. So, um, you know, we're, they're, they're, we've had to create our, our, we've always had to create our own underground and we still have it. Most use right now is in the underground. And I write the, I wrote the piece because I wanted to draw attention to the need to protect the underground because we are not going to get psychedelic democracy if things continue along the path of profit, profit, profit that they're on right now. And you point out that the gentrification of consciousness often involves stripping the journeys to altered states of all their historical, cultural, and religious significance and commodifying them in the middle of mass consumption. So what happens to tripping when it is commodified through mass consumption? How does that alter your altered state? You know, I, I, I'd, be a, I'd be a PhD or a, a 
hippie, a, a brown hippie too, you know? But uh, if I could ask that, but I, I would say that there's, you know, I agree with the indigenous people that didn't use the terminology, but very well knew what they were doing as far as what Timothy Leary coined the set and the setting, right? The, 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 the setting being where you are and uh, who you're with, if you're with anybody, um, and so the indigenous, you know, or, and the setting, the set is the mindset. What you bring to the experience at that moment, consciously and subconsciously, will be magnified power in powerful ways, which is part of what the therapy or part of the uh, tradition, in the case of the indigenous people, is, and the, 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 the religious, the religiosity, the transcendence of self that, that can come with uh, use of the medicines. So, you know, the, 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 the I, I don't know what's gonna happen with the profit motive. I don't know that the profit motive offers us any higher consciousness than what indigenous people practice in community. So I draw the contrast, for example, between say the singing, dancing, music, and other parts of ritual that the Ohlone and other indigenous peoples of the Americas practiced that included the medicines. And it was always in community. And I look, I also draw, my own experience has always been in community using, even in lowriders with a bunch of people, we would, you know, or there are clinics here in the mission that, that were clandestinely providing uh, different uh, psychoactive substances underground based on the teachings of indigenous peoples in Mexico and the Americas. Long before uh, many, most people now kind of came onto the, 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 the boat, you know? And, and I draw the contrast between these communitarian practices and the idea that I can just kind of do like I order a pizza or order Thing. I can be in my lonely little San Francisco big apartment where 10, 12 people of families used to live and I can have an app and I can have them send me my ketamine and I can have an experience. And I'm not against technology or against um, some of the things that are happening with psychoactive and psychedelic substances right now. What I am doing is interrogating the idea that you can reduce a millennial experience of millennial cultures to an app, it just seems like bullshit to me, quite frankly, and scary. We are speaking with journalist Roberto Lovato, who wrote the Alta Journal article, The Gentrification of Consciousness, which, again, you can find at altaonline.com. Follow Roberto on Twitter at Rob Votto, and find out more about Roberto at his website, robertolovato.com. And you write of the psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy clinic, uh, the location of Polaris Insight Center, a few blocks away from my high school alma mater, is familiar enough. The therapist, Veronica Gold, is a very affable psychologist from the Czech Republic. Public, long a major center of psychedelic research. She tells me of the many challenges her clinic and others that want to serve the poor non-white clients face. And you quote Gold saying, a major issue is accessibility. These medicines, the treatments are so expensive that it really is not accessible for most people from working class backgrounds. And as you were mentioning, uh, Timothy Leary earlier, as we toured the office of Polaris Insight Center, the conversation with Gold, the therapist, has me pondering the most significant influences on the 
psychedelic experience, the setting and the set. Terms coined by Timothy Leary. Setting refers to the external environment again, the people, places, and things around us when we experience the medicines. Set refers to our mindset, the things affecting our internal state, including our personality, our mood, our expectations, and especially the preparation we do to maximize the experience. So what is the impact on a psychedelic experience when the setting is a place like the Polaris Insight Center? How does that affect your experience? Before anything, I want to say the Polaris, the folks at Polaris Insight are really, I've seen two different approaches to ketamine clinics, for example, because ketamine is the one, the primary uh, psychedelic psychoactive substance of the ones I'm talking about that is legal right now to use. And, um, you know, we're going to see some laws in California that will make others that will, you know, make changes to other substances. Uh, federal government's another level. So, you know, the folks at Polaris are, there's two different kinds of people in psychedelics right now and in these ketamine clinics. There's the people like Polaris that are thoughtful, caring, and, and really trying to break their backs, go out of the way to try to give people access to these treatments that cost anywhere from $400 to $2,000 a session. Right. And sometimes you have to do multiple sessions to kind of see some res- desired results. And then there's the people that are in it for the profit, the people who I've interviewed who are cutting costs and therefore cutting the things that affect your set and your settings. So that, for example, if I want to go, you know, you know, they recommend many hours of preliminary meetings to prepare you for the journey, which Indigenous, this is based on indigenous knowledge and on knowledge in the case of Polaris gained from research in of all places, Czechoslovakia, which was one of the centers of psychedelic research when it was a communist country. Uh, I mean, one of the groundbreaking people in the application of psychedelics to psychotherapy is a guy named Stanislav Grof. Stan Grof, who uh, was a friend of one of my mentors and um, is a friend of one of my mentors because they're both alive actually. So. Um, you know, the, the folks at Polaris bring a deep history in Western Czechoslovakian and other uh, looks at things. But, you know, I, they were their offices are down up the street from Mission High School, a place where, you know, I had to admit in my story and I'm doing it here actually live for the first time. I used to rob people. I was a working class kid and I used to rob and beat up people uh, along with my friends. And, you know, the people were living in these uh, Victoria, this gorgeous Victorian apartments that uh, our you know, families used to live in. And so there was a bit of kind of economic raisonment, if you, if you will, or you know, combined with economic need. And so I, you know, I, how am I gonna deal with going into one of these old apartments with my mindset being cluttered with these memories of robbing these white people, right? So, you know, it was, it's just one of many examples of the ways that uh, working class, non-white people are going to have to deal, would have a hard time dealing as a therapist, like another one in my article, Daniela Herrera, uh, an indigenous Filipina and Chicana who, from LA who, who's here in the Bay Area and is telling me about the ways that um, traditional Western approaches and, and, and putting people in these white rooms is maybe not the place where people that have more family issues um, about drugs, who have a drug war that has been just plunked upon their existence, right? Because I mean, people here in San Francisco who talk about race in this 
digital Darwinism that we see don't seem to remember that the reason that uh, Facebook and Twitter have two to three percent uh, black and Latinx employees on average or something like near that is, is not because of um, genetic inferiority to whites and Asians who dominated, but because these communities have had a historic prison industrial complex built around the, their children's grades and their children's futures. So, you know, uh, needless to say, the drug war affected working class and non-white peoples in, uh, in, in, in disproportionate ways. And we're still dealing with the legacy of that. And of I would even argue the drug war launched by Junipero Serra and the Inquisition during the Renaissance. And so the psychedelic Renaissance, which I don't know why Poland and these other people are calling it a, using that terminology, doesn't seem to hold history into account when it starts developing these allegedly innovative new models for treatment. What happens to our understanding of the so-called success of Silicon Valley when we do not consider the inequality that it has imposed, not only within the tech sector in Silicon Valley, but upon all the people of San Francisco Bay Area? Um, could you repeat that, please? Sure. What happens to our what happens to our understanding of Silicon Valley when we think of the success of Silicon Valley? What happens to that idea of success of Silicon Valley when we ignore the inequality that it also imposes? How does that well, go ahead? Yeah, it's kind of like the way I see accounting. Right, we have to change our ideas of accounting because our traditional ideas of accounting don't take into account <laughs> the devastation that has now brought the planet to the brink of destruction. Right. Capitalism, not Soviet Union, destroyed the climate in ways that have, you know, mass destroyed entire species, thousands of them, and is threatening life on Earth as we know it, as Tonga will tell you last week, right? So, um, and uh, you know, as, so, so in the same way that we have to change our ideas of account, we have to change our ideas of success, quote unquote, because the success of Silicon Valley has killed, displaced, destroyed, poisoned poor and non-white communities throughout the Bay Areas. You're not gonna have, you don't have a black community to speak of really except in Hunter's Point, and that's really shrinking fast in San Francisco. You're not gonna have a Latinx community in the near foreseeable future in the Bay Area, except in the symbolic, beautiful murals, right? My neighborhood of origin, the mission is home to the largest concentration of murals in the world. Another one of those reflections of the magical power of community that we built back in the day, but that's now just gonna be the only remnant, like some ruin in an archeological site of Latinx indigenous people in this part of the United States, except for small pockets which is where people are off already being pushed into because you know your average rents are $2,900 to $3,000 and up for an apartment or $1.4 million to buy a house. These are like double anything in most of the country. So um, you know, the, the, the success of Silicon Valley has just like the um, Renaissance, just like, yeah, the Renaissance and the, the underbelly of the Renaissance being the Inquisition, um, you know, our going, our, 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 our success means that people will be killed, displaced, poisoned, traumatized. Like I, I take readers in, into a 
not directly into, but I speak to the head of a, a community clinic, a friend of mine, Felix, uh, Felix Curry, Palestinian Salvadoran revolutionary psychologist who was telling me about um, the ways that these folks that are living five, 10 people in an apartment are dealing with domestic violence, with, with trauma from war left over 10, 20 years ago, with or 30 years ago, or dealing with um, the challenge, but the biggest challenge they're facing is the psychological disruption and, and constant disruption that is uh, gentrification, you know, the pressure from landlords to push them out. So um, that's the success of Silicon Valley. I mean, I've, I've talked to kids and gone to classrooms here in the mission where, um, you know, kids will be writing poetry and their poetry has these images of these superhero robots fighting against landlords. <laughs> these are the, these are the cartoons and the the images and the poetry and in the and in the graphic comics that some of the teachers have them create that are in the in the subconscious of these children. And this is the the future that we that we're we're hailing. Where you know, I mean, and, and Silicon Valley is driving not just in San Francisco or California, but throughout the world, the concentration of wealth at exponential levels, unprecedented in the history of the world. So they need to dismantle Facebook. And they need to really send a message. We need to. I mean, I've advocate. I mean, believe it or not, I'm an advocate of the death penalty for some citizens, corporate citizens. If you want to put people to 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 death, which I oppose, why don't you take the citizen that you say the corporation is and put it to death and dismantle it for its crimes against humanity? I think Facebook qualifies. I think uh, other companies could very well. Uh, do that because they're doing it in the physical world, and I think that unless we we become aware, they're going. We're, we're going to see this in the realm of consciousness. And you know, I've survived a, and I, I fought in a, a in a war against the fascist military dictatorship. So I I know firsthand what it is to look at the abyss that you were talking about, staring at the abyss in the way you and Nietzsche talk about, right? Because it, the and so to look at the abyss that I cover in my book, which is the abyss of war, trauma, and the abyss of gentrification that I saw in the mission, I had the great fortune to have a, a therapist who was a psychologist. I mean, I had the first good fortune to grow up in the mission and to be exposed to the medicines in my late teens and been using them you know, throughout the last 40 years. But at this latter stage, when I was getting ready to look at all of the abysses of that I've looked at in my life as a former guerrilla fighter, as a journalist that's traveled throughout the world looking at terrorism, narco violence, and other things. I had the good fortune to find a therapist that um, provided me the most powerful medicines to, for me to face those different abysses that I had had, I, had experienced. And he was, uh, you know, clandestinely providing me for about two and a half years um, microdosing and macrodosing of LSD. And my book, Unforgetting, uh, is as much a product of the use of the medicines as it is a product of, you know, my writing, my journalism, and my experience. So uh, I, 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 I know firsthand uh, the power of these medicines to treat and to empower us to look at things in a different way, to look at ourselves, to overcome ourselves. 
And I, 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 I decided, you know, screw it. I'm going to come out about this hidden part of my life in that underworld, right? I was part, in my book, I came out for the first time as a former guerrilla. And now I decided, well, I'm going to tell the back end story of the book, which is the psychedelic underground. And that's what motivated me to write the story. You write that finding out that more than a few techies joined Silicon Valley investor and prominent Trump supporter Peter Thiel in seeing psychoactive psychoactive substances as the next disruptive technology reminds me that these are the same techies who, before COVID-19, came to the mission and drank craft beer at the bar Amnesia, watched movies at the Alamo Draft House, and lived in multi-million dollar condos with names like Vida, Spanish for life. So, in your opinion, what happens to psychedelics when they are viewed as a disruptive technology and not seen as a healing medicine. I think the profit motive takes over where the human motive uh, should, should, should be centered, right? In other words, the, 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 the conscious, the real consciousness of that includes the, the, the consciousness of the heart, the consciousness, not just of the mind. Silicon Valley is a mind-driven enterprise. It's not a heart-driven enterprise. That's clear and undeniable in the physical realm of San Francisco and in the mission where my community has been largely displaced and destroyed. And then they have a narrative that we're, there's a, there's a subconscious narrative among whites and non-whites in Silicon Valley that Latinos and black people are genetically inferior. Okay, I, 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 I hear and I smell it in the streets of the mission in Lac Boheme where some techies go sometimes. I hear it in, in the BART station. I hear it on the streets. It's basically an assumption, hey man, my people did it, so should you. Okay, well, your people didn't have to live with a goddamn drug war and US imperialism stuffed down your throats like we did. We had a very particular way that it happened to us. And so, um, you know, the, 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 the Silicon Valley, um, Techies and and the and the, and their their leaders are, are 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 not in the don't seem to be in the business of caring about um, what happens to folks in the field. If, if why why should we assume that the the the, the displacement destruction and um, devastation of say my community in the mission or the Fillmore or other parts of the entire Bay Area that are being dismantled by Silicon Valley greed and profits. Why should we believe that what happened in the physical realm is not, I mean, so I, I mentioned amnesia because it just seems so bitingly ironic that they're going to bars called amnesia. That bar is gone because of COVID, but you know, they used to go there or you know, they, they've changed the, the, the new mission theater that I grew up going to see James Bond and Bruce Lee movies and, 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 and other movies, they've changed the name of the new mission into the Alamo Draft House, where you can have craft beer, you know, for $20 or 30, and then you pay another 20 to $50 to see the movie when we used to go for, to see the movies there for like $2 or less. So why should we believe that what, what, what they led us to in the physical realm is not going to happen in the realm of consciousness. So as I wrote this as kind of to sound an alarm, hey, look, you can believe this talk of the psychedelic Renaissance, but look historically at the word Renaissance itself. Look at the Inquisition. 
Look at the destruction of native peoples. Look at the way that those who were leading the psychedelic renaissance, for example, and I mentioned this in my article, they could give a flying rolling donut about the death, destruction, and dismantling of the lives of the indigenous peoples of the of the global south, especially in the, the in this hemisphere where you know all these ayahuasca communities, the music, the, the the communities in Mexico that brought us mushrooms, peyote, mescaline, these communities are under attack, like my friends in uh, who are the Huisharica peoples in northern Mexico right now. They're facing big agribusiness. They're facing um, um, mining interests. They're facing a corrupt and violent Mexican government. They're facing narcos, and they're facing one of their greatest challenges in psychedelic tourism. So the people, even nonprofits that are promoting, you know, this kind of liberal view of psychedelics are not doing absolutely anything about the condition of the people who brought us this in the global south and in, in the Americas. And so, you know, one of you know, my sources in the in the psychedelic community and the medicine community are, you know, came brought me this term that I didn't know, which was terms like spiritual extractivism, right? Where they're doing what they do in mining in the physical world to the world of culture, where you mine a culture, you take what's valuable from it and you leave the land destroyed or, you know, un, un, unlivable. They're gonna do similar things and they're doing similar things in culture when Compass, for example, a company, one of the biggest players is patenting, you know, uh, you know, plant medicines that are millennial and that are protected by my friends, the Wixaricas, who are now being killed off, as happened just a few couple of weeks ago, where six people were killed. And these people are the people that, that are the, you know, there's a film about the, they are the protectors of the medicine, of, of some of the medicines. And so, um, you know, I, I was on a caravan of, uh, uh, that came from Mexico to the United States with, the survivors of the U.S. sponsored drug war that began with in 2006 with Bush and was expanded by Obama and continued by Trump in Mexico and continued now by Biden. Uh, you know, they, 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 I was with uh, included in the in the victims of that uh, of the, who were about 100 on these buses going from 24 U.S. cities were were some of the Wixarica peoples uh, and you know they, I befriended some of them. They were telling me about. And now they're telling me about how they're under attack and how they go to conferences with uh, U.S.-based nonprofit leaders in the psychedelic and realm and in the for-profit realm. And they're even laughed at, okay, indigenous people at these conferences because of their demands to be treated equally and to be treated with respect. So, um, you know, I, I challenge, you know, any of these uh, nonprofit think tanks whether it's at Berkeley or Johns Hopkins, or whether it's a for-profit business or it's a nonprofit, you know, in the United States that claims to be, you know, wanting to do the right thing to to make a connection to the peoples that brought us this in the first place, and to to, to actually speak out about it instead of adopting what one source of mine called, um, uh, what was it, spiritual? Gosh, man, I'm I'm. Uh, well, you know, it's 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 extractivism and it's spiritual. 
Uh, bear with me one sec. Uh, not spiritual, spiritual bypassing, right? Spiritual bypassing where basically, you know, hey, I'm really into your ayahuasca. I'm really into your peyote, but I could give a flying rolling donut about the fact that your people are being slaughtered, that you're the challenges you face, or I could care less about, you know, I love, you know, the murals of the mission. I love the Mexican food. Hey, but you know, the fact that all these traumatized migrants or these people that have been here for decades are being pushed out by me and my techie friends, who cares? I'm really having a good trip. Well, so, let me let me ask you about that real quick, because I, I'm just why do you think it is that that spiritual bypass or psychedelic tourism or spiritual extractivism? Why do you think those who are practicing those processes, which they may not have intended to, which they may not recognize? Why do they not recognize those as processes of colonialism? What explains to you their unwillingness or inability to notice that those are processes of colonialism? Well, I think you've answered the question in your question. Uh, People don't have a high uh, assimilation and education rate with respect to matters colonial. People are not taught. I mean, we're at a time where kind of neo-fascists are even bringing us to a point where they want to institute a fascist cult of amnesia with respect to critical race theory in the history of the United States. Very dangerous coming from, you know, I'm telling you this as someone that literally fought a fascist military dictatorship. Fascism needs the erasure of memory. That's why I called my book Unforgetting. And I wrote my book as a way to, again, sound another alarm about, hey, this is coming to your country soon. And I also included in there the way to fight it, right? Which was what I, with not just guerrilla warfare, but with uh, guerrilla warfare and culture. We need to hack the hackers. We need to, you know, um, hack the culture to get messages. I mean, we need stuff like what you're doing on this show, in fact. And I don't mean that to kiss anybody's behind it. I really do mean that. I think what you all, what we all do in the in media at this moment is critical. What, what folks are doing in education is urgent. And so, you know, yeah, people are deep, people default to white supremacy in a white supremacist culture. So why would it surprise us when when people start taking, you know, and 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 white supremacy, people's understanding about white supremacy doesn't doesn't include things like forgetting or things like colonialism or liberalism. Like liberalism has a, you know, I mean, San Francisco, the mission district is a a ruin or a monument to the liberal work, the workings of the liberal imagination and the liberal economy, neoliberal economy in Silicon applied to communities. And, you know, I mean, do, 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 do my friends and relatives who were destroyed, whose lives, livelihoods were destroyed in the mission care whether their livelihoods were destroyed by a, a liberal talking uh, uh, techie like Mark Zuckerberg or whether it's a neo-fascist like Peter Thiel? It don't matter. The fact is you dropped a grenade in the core of our consciousness and now we're, we are, um, we're living the consequence. So whether you drop the grenade unconsciously in a liberal way or consciously in a neo-fascist way or consciously as a liberal because liberals do do 
things are agreed and 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 and, and uh, venality too. We have been speaking with journalist Robert Lo- Roberto Lovato, who wrote the Alta Journal article, The Gentrification of Consciousness. Roberto, I've got one last question for you. You can follow Roberto on Twitter at Rob Vado. You can find out more about Roberto at his website, RobertoLovato.com. Again, he is the author of Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas, which was listed as a must-read 2020 book by Newsweek, and the LA Times listed it as one of its 20 best books of 2020. One last question for you, Roberto. And as we do with all of our guests, I promise our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You uh, quote somebody, and now I'm missing her name, uh, last name of Labat, uh, Dr. Labat, telling you a utilitarian approach where we want to get knowledge from indigenous people and sometimes imitate their practices and pick and choose things that we like, but we don't engage in any kind of indigenous rights, such as land rights or health or conservation or all kinds of other things. We can celebrate indigenous plants, but indigenous people continue to be murdered throughout the Americas. As someone who is Indio, when you are using mushrooms, how difficult is it to not remember the murder of not only indigenous people, but indigenous culture, including the criminalization of healing medicines like psilocybin how difficult is it for you to not see the past when you are tripping in the present it's as difficult as the giant meteor of capitalism is on the planet and has been hitting it for so long like like the ones that destroyed the dinosaurs i think it's extremely difficult to look at trauma i mean uh, I had to have the help of the medicines. I had to have community ceremonies. I went to TP ceremonies with indigenous peoples. I worked with therapists and uh, I had to look at the most difficult things there are to look at in my life. We have to do with war, displacement, domestic violence, and you know, that was rained on me and, and, and uh, psychological violence and uh, it's uh, it's as difficult a thing as there is. It's like trying to kind of come to grips with the death of your mom, those of you that have lost a parent. It's really, really hard. But this is where the, the that work is made less difficult by the medicines because if you have the right set, the right mindset, you prepare yourself. If you have the right setting, if you surround yourself with the right people, go to the right place and not just go to have a fun trip, which is good and dandy. I advocate the recreational use as well, but I've been talking mainly about the the healing use of the medicines, the ritual use of the medicines Uh, to to, to kind of put your mind, your your mindset and your, your, your environmental set in place and then sit with whatever the medicines bring you with and having prepared yourself to look at your own private hell, your own private abyss, is among the most important things we can do right now, especially those of us that are political, those of us that are concerned about the rise of neo-fascism and the capitalist order that will sustain it regardless, right? Because capitalism doesn't care who's in power as long as the profits continue. Trump is the expression of capitalism's willingness to flirt with fascism. So um, 
you know, if we're concerned about, we have to do the work to look at these things because you talked earlier about the way that colonialism is normalized. We need to unnormalize. We need to decolonialize. And so there is a movement within psychedelics to decolonize psychedelics. People like Daniela Herrera and, and, and uh, uh, some other folks like Bia Labate and others, they'll talk, talk to you about the decolonization as will the indigenous peoples. So I actually end the story with great hope. And I wanna end the interview with great hope because regardless of how much there's been a goddamn inquisition has been, you know, a, 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 a renaissance, a psychedelic renaissance that's not inclusive. As much as there's big capital coming in, as much as they've displaced, destroyed people's lives, like in the mission, there is still a thriving underground that includes a psychedelic underground. And I, having been a former underground, in a former underground uh, in El Salvador during the war, I can tell you that you know, that's, that's going to be the place. Those are going to be the places where we're going to have to uh, kind of keep the embers of, of, of hope warm and, and, and hot so that we can face what's coming. And so one of our, yeah, I don't want to say weapons, but one of our instruments that we can use in the fight um, against neo-fascism and again, and, 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 and within ourselves, because I know a lot of people listening everywhere, they're like, they're struggling like a lot of us are, and and, and they're, they're, they 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 have a friend in the medicines if used in the right way, in the way that you put your mind and your your mindset and your 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 environment, your setting in place. So really, I, I wrote the piece ultimately because I also wanted to share the hope and the power that I've that I've had the experience to be uh, a part of in the mission and beyond. So just just one, one more question, though, for you, Roberto, just to follow up, because I have experienced psychedelics hundreds of times in my life. And in fact, my first time that I ever did experience them was only a few months after your very first experience. And it was with the exact same drug, mescaline. So uh, but I've been very concerned during the pandemic. I have had offered to me, which is fantastic. I've had much better access to psychedelics, but I've been very afraid to take psychedelics during a pandemic. And even the people who have been offering me psychedelics have had the exact same concern. So when it comes to the trauma of the pandemic, should I be trying to find the healing power within psychedelics? Or am I just going to have a really bad trip because I'm too consumed with the pandemic that lurks outside? Well, I think that's, uh, I can't answer that for you. I think that's between you and your your gods. Um, my gods include the gods of the underworld. So like I joined William Blake and believing in the inversion of values that's inherent in his, uh, the marriage of heaven and hell, you know? And so I, you know, you know, look at Daniel Defoe's uh, year in the pandemic book, right? I mean, there's in that period they were using psychedelics in Europe. We've been in crisis forever. I mean, if you read Walter Benjamin, the great German philosopher, we've always been in crisis. And crisis is like this, the, this, the, the angel of history and is dragging us along on this ongoing crisis that keeps kind of growing in some ways and just keeps consistent. And so having lived through what scholars of theology and scholars of violence call the apocalyptic violence of El Salvador, I, I cannot but think that, you know, in the face of the epidemic, in the face of war, 
in the face of near death, as many are experiencing right now, we have a great ally in the, in the struggle for dignity, for awareness, for humanity in these medicines that have proven time and again their power. I mean, if you look at graphs, for example, where the axis is, one axis is the axis of potential for death and the other is the axis for potential addiction. If you look at the upper right hand of that graph, which is the most dangerous side, do you know what is the most dangerous of substances on that graph? I would assume alcohol. Correcto. And you know, the lower left, lower left part of that graph is the safest part. You know what's the safest? I'm going to guess natural uh, uh, psychedelics. Plant-based psychedelics and psychedelics generally. They're not addictive by and large. So um, that's contrary to the image of psychedelics that began when they started, you know, uh, illegalizing LSD and other substances thereafter. And, you know, I think uh, I really, the political part of me really believes that the state has an investment in controlling our consciousness. You know, there's been ideological analyses, but I think we're going to have to start figuring out what is the state up to in its dalliance with psychedelics? What sort of a control program and agenda? We know that the CIA had like M Cultura program and other programs, including places where like here in San Francisco, they would go to bars, pick people up, fill them with psychedelics and, and experiment with them like Pavlovian dogs. So, um, you know, I'm not one to believe that uh, there aren't forces behind the liberal face of uh, the psychedelic renaissance that are in cahoots with the state to try to control our consciousness in ways that include, oddly enough, this. So remember, these substances are neutral. They're neither, I mean, there were Nazis experiencing, experimenting with psychedelics. There's a version of the New Age movement in Germany that included, you know, that led to Nazism. They were experimenting with, experimenting with psychedelics. The hippies, took, you know, by and large, took the, the more peacenik route to psychedelics, but psychedelics themselves are neither pro-peace or pro-war. They can be used for, for, for war and for peace. It all depends on, on who's, how we approach them and what the powers that be are trying to influence. So we need to be mindful. <laughs> we need to be mindful of our minds right now because there's a, there's a movement afoot, not just with electronic technology, but the the, one of the, I asked one of my sources about one of the big fears about uh, the psychedelic quote-unquote renaissance, and he told me that, he's a lawyer, um, and he told me that, and he works on these issues, and he told me that one of his big fears is the combination of the legalization of psychedelics with the kind of algorithms that companies like Facebook have where they're going to start targeting people with psychedelic ads. Just imagine that. People that may not need or may not be in a good position to be using these powerful medicines are going to start getting targeted with these powerful ads, just like everything else you get on, on social media. So that's kind of the downside. I'd rather look at the upside where, you know, I have a, I think I've tried to live a life committed to emancipation. I joined a revolutionary movement and I think there's a potential for these medicines for emancipatory work with the self and in community. And, you know, sometimes the emancipatory work can include returning to the sacred ways 
We're trying to come close to the sacred ways of those who led us to these places of altered states in the first place, the indigenous people. So, yeah, I think that's the best way to kind of end on a positive note. Roberto, thank you so much for being on our show. Again, Roberto Lovato wrote the Alta Journal article, The Gentrification of Consciousness. Check out his book, Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas. Again, thank you so much for being on our show, Roberto, and enjoy the rest of your week. You too. My pleasure. You are here, thank you. And this Live from the United is hell. Keeping it real, real deep in debt. Since 1996, this is hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. On this week's Patreon, I have predictions for 2023, and every one of them is guaranteed to unfortunately and very sadly come true with my deepest apologies for their inevitable fruition. What I will be predicting will definitely come true. There is no uncertainty or doubt about my accuracy in these predictions, and that's the worst part of my predictions for 2023. There is no way they will not take place. These events that I foresee are unavoidable. I'm not happy about it, and you likely will not be either. Either The worst part is you would think that if I know so much about our future, then I would make money off of my predictions and make the best investments and be rich, rich, rich. But no, if I actually profited off of what I know is going to happen this year, I would hate myself because what I would be profiting from is... Misery. You also just don't want to change your name to Chuck Stradamus. That's right. As I keep suggesting exactly. Uh, you know, and, and just I just don't want to cause miserable feelings in others. You know, and who would want to profit off of somebody else's misery unless you're a psychopath and don't care if your investment causes misery in others, which I think is the definition of a capitalist. Also on Patreon, back in early March, only three days before I had to be rushed to the hospital to have what would be a series of life-saving medical procedures, we got an email from listener Alex, which I just found in my inbox this past weekend and read on air earlier this week. In it, listener Alex, not to be confused with producer Alex, suggested a guest. Alex suggested we have on the uh, show Melissa Gira-Grant, journalist, author, and documentary filmmaker. Turns out Melissa was on our show way back in 2014. And we have yet to share that conversation on Patreon. So that's what we're doing this week. We're playing our interview with Melissa Guerra Grant from 2014 about her book, Playing the Whore, the work of sex work. So that's what the interview will be playing on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. But the only way you can hear all of that is by supporting this is hell through becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Sebastian, please remind us again, what is this week's question from Al? And, uh, you know, I seriously doubt that we have any more answers, but do we have any more answers? We do not. The question... The bleh. This week's question from hell was, we rarely fulfill our New Year's resolutions. We never actually do what we say we are determined to do. So what did you do in 2022 that you have resolved not to do in 2023? And there are no answers. There are no more answers. This is the fewest responses we have ever had to a question from hell. So we're going to have to come up with a much better one next week. I can read to you all of the answers right now. SLS said, let the demon on my butt talk me into a half rage. And then he says, oops, because he realized that it's a hell ride, not a hell rage. I said half, I meant hell. Uh, David Z saying, respond to this week's question from hell. Uh, J- John T saying, hatch all my chickens before they're accounted. What a mess that was. Dave saying, I resolve not to write 22 as the year when writing the date. 
and the Liz Truss tribute account saying, I'm not going to answer any questions from hell this year. That makes this week's winner SLS for saying, let the demon on my butt talk me into a hell rage, which he was corrected earlier this week that it is a hell ride. Congratulations, SLS. Just tell us what piece of This Is Hell swag you want from what is available at thisishell.com when you click on support, and we will get it in the mail to you post-haste. My answer to this week's question from hell is I resolve not to talk about my health on the show this year. The only reason that I mentioned it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in 2022 is because I had a a serious health issue. It was so bad one doctor said I had a 60-40 chance, and I assume he meant at surviving, while another told me I looked like I was at death's door. Not talking about my health in 2023 would mean that I have no serious health conditions, which means I resolved not to talk about my health this year because I'm hoping that, unlike 2022, this year... I won't almost die. Thanks to so everyone. You're, you're basically doing the thing now. What, um, like when you're when you're in, have, when you have like a steady impl- a steady job that comes with benefits, yes. and uh, every year you basically have to go through the thing and be like, how many times do you anticipate that you will use the emergency room this year? <laughs> exactly. And you're just like, holy. <laughs> I gotta figure this out now. I'm gonna go with a handful. So thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from Hell. Uh, Sebastian, who are our guests next week during our first full week of new live shows in 2023? Uh, okay, so we do not know about Monday yet, do we? No. Nope. Okay. Uh, on Tuesday, we have investigative journalist Stefania Maurizzi, who will discuss the case of Julian Assange and her new book, Secret Power, WikiLeaks, and uh, Its Enemies. Working uh, with Il Fatto Quotidiano, uh, Il Fatto Quotidiano. Uh, having previously reported for La Repubblica and L'Espresso, Stefania began covering Julian Assange and WikiLeaks in 2009 for her newspaper. Among international journalists, she is the only one who has worked on the entirety of the WikiLeaks secret documents and the only one who has conducted a multi-jurisdictional litigation to defend the right of the press to access the full documentation of the WikiLeaks case. And then on Wednesday's live show? On Wednesday, uh, we will also have the re- Return of journalist Christopher Ketchum, who wrote, who co-wrote the Intercept piece, "The shutdown of luxury emissions should be at the center of the climate revolt. Climate disorder won't be remedied through an orderly march of green energy. The world must also rein in consumption." Jeez, Intercept! Like, what are, are we? Are you trying to just make make people like me just pass out? Yes, by reading. Yes. <sighs> Anyway, Christopher co-wrote the story with Charles Komanov. Christopher writes at Christopher Ketchum, that is K-E-T-C-H-A-M dot com, for his journalism non-profit, Denatured. Thanks to this week's producers, Sebastian Vupper, Lindsay Gorey, and Dan Hill. Thanks to uh, Jeff Dorchin for another year filled with moments of truth, and to Ronaldo Magaldi for every week in rotten history in 2022, and to Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, and Theron Humiston, just because. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. The This Is Hell holiday office party returned this year, this past year, and I could not be happier. And thanks to everybody who showed up at This Is Hell office hours, which have also returned. So you can drop by any Wednesday evening from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, and hang out during This Is Hell office hours, our meet and greet. That's really a drink and think. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this 
is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>